You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley. Uh, for those of you it's your first time at King's Church, welcome. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who didn't know, uh, my wife and I, and actually Ben as well, we were on vacation uh, this past week in Florida, so we were not together. We were on a separate coast of Florida. Uh, that would have been a little weird, but I guess it's cool. Uh, we get a vacation together. Uh, but as we were as we were in Florida, uh, spending some beach time and time with family, Abby and I, uh, we uh, we had a different experience this time there before, and it was it was because of the location. We were uh, on the Atlantic coast and and kind of on this little more private section of the beach, and we noticed when we got there that there was all these like uh, like orange kind of uh, design like areas that clearly were like you're not supposed to go in, and they were all around us. We're like, what is going on here? Well, as we get closer, we realize that we're surrounded by sea turtle nests. They're everywhere. And I didn't really know much about sea turtles, I still don't, um, but I didn't realize how, how much people cared about sea turtles, <laughs> like really, really care. So every day, um, as we would go out to the beach, as our family, we have not just our kids, but our cousins and everything, so there's like six kids under six, it was a little crazy. Um, as we're all at the beach playing, right, this lady would come by um, on her four-wheeler uh, every day and remind us that we could get a serious fine if we leave any obstacles on the beach that would prohibit the sea turtles to make it to the ocean. So every day she would come by at the same time and remind us, if you leave that umbrella, you will get fined. If you leave that shovel, you will get fined, right? If you leave that sandcastle and don't break that thing down, you're going to get fined. And she did it in the most passive-aggressive, kind way you could do it to a family trying to vacation on the beaches of Florida, right? And, and every day we, we, we realized the, the seriousness of the situation, so we're like, okay, we want to protect the sea turtles as well, so all right, we'll do this. So every day we would we'd take all of our stuff, we'd make sure we'd scan the beach to make sure there was absolutely no obstacles. And the last day, uh, we planned to actually go out uh, to see the sea turtles in action. I was too lazy and decided to sleep instead. But um, the moral of the story was pretty cool. Abby got to see the sea turtles coming up, and, and there was no obstacles, and they were able to make it. It was a beautiful thing, right? But this story, as I was thinking about it, as I was pondering on the beach, how incredibly uh, uh, passionate this lady was about making sure there were no obstacles in the way of these sea turtles thriving, uh, I realized that in my own life, one of the struggles that I have when it comes to my faith is actually when we come to passages like this. For me, one of the struggles I've always had and one of the biggest obstacles in my faith journey has been that of miracles. Like just, can we really believe that what happened in this passage actually happened? Like, like do we actually believe that, that, that God was powerfully working through Peter in such a way that a man w- was paralyzed and then healed and then another woman was raised from the dead? And I always struggle with this. It was always an obstacle for me to overcome. Can I actually believe that miracles exist? And maybe today you're in that boat. Maybe you're in the camp of miracles don't exist. There's no way they exist. Or, or perhaps this is just something that uh, the, the writer Luke was just writing about to kind of encourage us in our faith and et cetera. But, but do we really believe that God can break through in all power in this world to do the impossible? Now, the other camp that, that an obstacle might present itself in this passage is that you do believe miracles exist, and you've been praying for one, and it hasn't happened, right? Like, like maybe you have someone who is terminally ill in your family, 
Maybe you have someone who is really struggling right now, and you've been praying, you've been on your knees, just like Peter this passage, praying that God would break through with a miracle, and it hasn't happened yet. And perhaps that's been an obstacle in your faith. And what I want us to see today is that God in this passage actually clears those obstacles out of the way for us. That what he shows us here is that to believe in God is to believe that he can do the miraculous. And to believe in God is to believe in the one who is for us. So that when we pray, when we may feel like he's not listening, he is. When we come upon a time when we experience suffering in this life, and we experience tragedy in this life, and we think, is God for us? He is. And this passage reminds us of that. It reminds us of the power of God to overcome the things of this world. And so our main idea of the text today, as we jump in, it's going to be very simple. It's going to come straight from the text, and that is simply this, that Jesus Christ himself has power over disease and death. And if Christ has power over disease and death, then he has the power to overcome any other obstacle or challenge that we might face in this life. He absolutely does. And in fact, what this text will point us to is the fact that he's already overcome the greatest obstacle in life, death itself. And so I want us to, to, to not skip over this, uh, what seems to be these kind of two small, kind of insignificant, quieter stories in the grand scheme of the book of Acts, because it does seem a little odd, right? Like we just, just kind of a recap, we just got done talking about the conversion of Saul, which is like one of the most climactic moments in the book of Acts. It is a milestone for the book of Acts that Saul, the persecutor, becomes Paul, the missionary. And then right after that, you would think that the text would continue with his journey, but it doesn't. We see this break, and now we're reintroduced to Peter, but then we get to chapter 10, which we'll see next week, this other milestone event that happens in the life of the early church, that the the gospel, which was promised to all people, would go forth to the Gentiles. And between these two huge events, we find these miracle stories. And they're vitally important because they remind us that the God we serve is the God of all power, the God who can do the impossible the God who breaks through in this world to overcome disease and death and chaos. So our outline will flow straight from our main idea. I'm getting really creative today, guys. This is what vacation does for me. Okay, outline. Number one, Jesus has power over disease, right? And number two, Jesus has power over death. And we'll look at these two stories and try to draw some application for our own lives. Let's go ahead and jump into the text. Verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So here we're reintroduced to Peter, and if you've been tracking with us in the book of Acts, you see that Peter's kind of that, like that main character in the early book of Acts, in the early chapters of Acts. He's the apostle that we see uh, uh, miracles being performed through. He's the one who's preaching these incredibly powerful sermons. And the last time we saw Peter, he was in Samaria. And the reason he was in Samaria and Judea is because he was there to confirm that the gospel had truly gone forth to the Samaritans. We talked about this in Acts chapter 8. And that's important because Jesus in Acts chapter 1 outlines for us how his disciples would make him known in the world. They said it would start in Jerusalem, and then it would go to Judea, and then it would go to Samaria, and then it would go to the ends of the earth. And next week we're going to see how it breaks through to the ends of the earth. But right now he's still operating in this area of Samaria in Judea, and he finds himself now on this coastal town in the Mediterranean. Now, 
Just a side note, this seems like Peter's uh, beach ministry here. He's going to these coastal towns, and after being at the beach this past week, I kind of want to follow in his footsteps every now and then, right? I'm not leaving you guys, but every now and then, right? Some little itinerant beach ministry might not be a bad thing. So he's in this coastal town of, of, of Alida, and he's visiting the saints there. And it says that Peter meets this man, Aeneas. Now, we don't know much about the man, but we can assume because he's going to, to meet the believers there who probably have questions and are quarreling about what, what's going on, how, how does this now apply to our Jewish faith now that we believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he's going to, uh, to encourage them, to teach them, and he meets this man. And all the text says, this man has been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. I can imagine the longings of this man's heart. Right? Maybe he's just wanting to fill the, the cool water of the Mediterranean again against his legs, to feel what it, what it looks like to stand up and to feel the strength of his legs. And he has been bedridden for these eight years. And whatever dreams he cherished, they're about to come true because Peter sees this man and he simply says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Now all the moms in the house say that's, that's the miracle, right? To get people up and make their bed. And some of you still need that miracle in your life, and you're 35 years old, okay? Uh, get up and make your bed. And in doing this, Peter points to the source of the power. Notice that, guys. He says, who heals him? Jesus Christ. Now Jesus has a history of healing paralytics. You can go back and, and see that in the Gospels. And hereafter, he proclaims that Jesus Christ heals this man. He gets up and he walks out. And I'm sure his faith was strengthened. I'm sure he had much joy in his heart. But we see what happens as a result of this. It's not only that this one man's faith is strengthened. It's not only that he is healed. But because of this miracle, what happens is the gospel is spreading throughout the region. And now people are hearing, they're flocking. It has gone viral. And people are coming and they're believing in the Lord. They're turning to the Lord. Now, what's happening here? What can we learn from this? We're seeing in this passage that Jesus' power over the things of this world is being put on full display. Every time he heals the apostles, what Jesus is doing, he's pointing to the reality that he is the Son of God. He is the one in control. He is the one who has the power to break through this world, to break down disease and chaos. He is the only one who can do that. And the result is when people see his power on display, they believe in him as Lord, as the one who has the power to heal. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, I believe as we look at how Jesus is operating in this world and still today, that he uses the available to put his power on display. That he uses the available to put his power on display. Notice here that Peter uh, does have a role to play in this story, right? After all, it's his words, it's, it's his faith, right, in this moment. He's there to witness this man pick up his mat and go. And the text says, as we begin here, that Peter was out and about. He's ministering, he's going here, he's preaching the gospel here. In other words, Peter's not sitting on the sidelines. He's not sitting around doing nothing. He's active, he's involved. It's a great lesson for us because we would believe that, of course, of course, an apostle would be involved in the work of ministry, right? But it's a great lesson for us that we should be involved in the work of the church and what is happening. And then later in the text, as we get down there in verse 36, it says that when they send word for him to go to Joppa, he doesn't hesitate. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't prioritize other things and say, well, first I need to go do something else that's really important and maybe I'll get there. No, he goes. Why? Because Peter is available for God to use him. You see, really, the only ability that we have to offer God is our availability. I mean, let's put it this way. 
I have two young kids, okay? And that's no excuse, but that means I'm constantly exhausted, right? My energy is zapped constantly. And there's many days where I don't feel like I have the power to even just stand up and go. And in those moments, I can cry out to the Lord and say, God, I'm available. And you know what? His power is great in those moments. Why? Because it was never about my ability in the first place. And here in this passage, it's never about Peter's ability. It's about another person's power. That's what Peter says. It's Jesus Christ who heals you and not me. Peter's the means, but God is the power. And God uses Peter for his redemptive purposes. And God uses us in the same way. He desires to use us in this world. This is an incredibly overwhelming, important lesson to learn. The primary way that God gets his work done in this world is through the agency of available people. Not people filled with ability, but availability. You may feel like you don't have all the abilities and giftings to make an impact in this world, but God never says, I need more ability out of you. He desires your heart. He desires your availability. He desires you to desire to be used by him. What tremendous dignity God gives us as human beings, that in his grand design for this world, he uses us to get work done. The God of the universe uses available people just like Peter and just like us to fulfill his purposes in this world. It's a great encouragement for us to never underestimate how God could powerfully work through us when we're available to him. Now the text continues, though, and we don't just see that Jesus has his power over disease and that he uses Peter's availability to heal this man, but he also has the power over death. Let's look at the text in verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Okay, we're just going to go ahead and get this out of the way, all right? Let's just go ahead and laugh. Everybody just laugh, all right? Look, Dorcas actually means something very beautiful, but it doesn't translate well in the 21st century, okay? So uh, let, let me just tell you, if you want to have children one day, um, it's, this is not going to crack the top 100 on a baby naming list, okay? Uh, don't choose a name that would reflect poorly on your children, all right? But Dorcas is a beautiful name. It's just kind of funny, all right? So this, this woman's named Dorcas. She is full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And, and since, uh, since Lydda was so near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose up and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened up her eyes and when, he saw, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling on the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And so after Peter has been doing this ministry, and Lydda and Sharon, the disciples hear that he's close by, and they have this woman, Tabitha, Dorcas. She's this faithful disciple, this woman that people care and, and, and marvel at what she has done to the point where when they hear that Peter is close by, they send people to come and see her. And the text says that she has felt ill and she has died. And the description of her is, is quite an exemplary description. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. And the widows for whom she had made these clothes, they mourned for her deeply. And the disciples of Joppa, they promptly sent for Peter. And, and we can notice in the text that because of the urgency in which they send him and the fact that they haven't buried her yet, that they were hoping and praying that Peter could perform a miracle. 
And this actually parallels much of what we see in other stories in the Bible, right? What, what Peter does here is he actually follows suit of other times we see resurrection happen. You can look at the Old Testament and see in 2 Kings how Elijah raised a, 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 the Shulamite boy up from life. And you can look in the Gospels several places, but particularly in Mark where Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. In all these cases, you see a lot of similarities in the text. Just like Elijah and Jesus, Peter, when he arrives on the scene, he sends everyone out of the room in the same way that Jesus would have done. And just like Elijah, Peter falls to his knees in prayer, and he looks to the one who has the resurrection power to help him heal. And Peter calls out to Dorcas and says, Tabitha, arise, or get up. It's almost identical, it seems like, to what Jesus echoes uh, to Jairus' daughter. Talitha Kumo, little girl, get up. And the response is the same. Dorcas rises, she lifts her eyes, she rises, she sits up, and in similar accounts, just like we see in 2 Kings in the Gospel, Peter then presents her to the widows, presents her to the disciples alive again. What a miraculous story this is. God is putting his power on display over death. Now, it's important to know that Jesus, when he demonstrates his power in this world, particularly through miracles and the acts of the apostles like this, he's not just doing it to simply display his power, right? When we look at things of power, we think of supernatural power, we think of, okay, well, you have like ancient guys that we hear about who have supernatural power, like Hercules or someone like that. We also think of modern uh, kind of fictional characters like Superman, for instance, right? And how do they, how do they display their power? Well, they, they do it by putting that power on display for all to see them, right? So if Superman wants to display his power, he will do his little eye vision thing, and he will knock down the top of a mountain, right? And everybody will be like, okay, well, Superman's got power, right? He just crushed that mountain. But Jesus doesn't ever do that. He doesn't just show off his display of his power for himself. His power is pointing to something else. When he puts his power on display, he is pointing to the world that we desire. He is pointing to something that is right, that has been made wrong. When Jesus puts his power on display, he is both looking back at how the world was designed and created at the beginning, and he is also pushing us to look forward to how God is going to one day restore all things. That's why every time we see Jesus' power on display, it's dealing with human suffering. When you look at the the Gospels, you see every time Jesus is healing, it's dealing with the suffering of humanity. And when the the apostles follow in his footsteps and Jesus is performing these miracles through the apostles, it's the same way. It's to end suffering. That's why when we look at, at, at Jesus, when he heals a little boy of sickness, when he heals someone who is struggling with hunger, when he heals the sick, the leper, when he raises the dead, all these moments he's pointing back to the world in which there was no suffering, no disease, no death. When he stills the storm, he's pointing back to a time when nature was our friend and not our enemy, where there's no hunger, where there was no pain. The point is when Jesus puts his power on display over death here, and when he puts his power on display over disease here, he's pointing to the future. He's pointing to the world as it should be. You see, when we think about death and chaos and disease and suffering in this world, it's actually a suspension of how God ordered this world to be. And when Jesus comes into the Acts of the Apostles here and he performs these miracles, he's actually temporarily putting things back into order. He's showcasing this is how the world should be. That God is not for suffering. He is not for disease. He is not for death. He is not for sickness. He is not for hurt. And one day, he will eradicate all those things from this world. But until that day, Jesus wants us to participate in the work that he is doing. 
And that's what we see in this text, that Jesus is working through us for the good of this world. And there's no better example than this than Tabitha herself. Notice the description again of Tabitha. She is filled with generosity, charity, and with good works. In other words, Tabitha, or Dorcas, understands that this world is not what it should be. And she is putting on display in her life for the world to see what it looks like to serve others, to pour her life out for others. She's putting on display for what it looks like to participate in God's work in this world for the good of this world. C.S. Lewis says it this way, if you see cancer or a slum, we ought to say that not should be, and we also should do what we can. All right, there's a second half of that. So I'm just pointing out the fact that, that that not ought to be, but that we should do what we can to make a difference. You see, the resurrection reminds us here and that the, the, the resurrection of Dorcas herself reminds us that God is not trying to have us escape this world. He's not trying to have us escape this world. And in fact, what God wants to do is he wants us to fight alongside of him for the good in this world. That means he wants us to fight against disease because he's against disease. He wants us to fight against death because he's against death. He wants us to fight against poverty because he's against poverty. If Jesus Christ is resurrected physically, that means that Christianity is an active religion in this world. We don't escape this world. We press into the problems of this world. We want to be relentless just like Tabitha here in charity and good works for the sake of the needy, for the sake of our neighbor. Now notice there's another way in which I think Tabitha exemplifies what it looks like to allow Jesus to work through us for the good of this world. And the second is this, and it's really subtle, that our work matters. Notice the details here. Luke includes that these women are wearing garments that were made by Tabitha. They are honoring this woman for the work that she did, for the things that she created, that even at her death, even at her funeral, even at this moment of mourning and weeping, they are wearing the things that this woman poured out her life for. That's a great example for us, that God cares that we put 50 hours a week into our jobs. He wants us to put his power on display through our work life. Martin Luther says it this way, and I love this. He says that the most simplest of work is honor to God. He says, a simple farm girl who's milking the cow, she is one of the fingers of God. I love that. That even through the simplest of tasks, God is fulfilling his redemptive purposes in this world through us, including the things that we create, the things that we do. So how do we work in a way that is pleasing to, to God? Well, we follow in the path of Dorcas and Tabitha here. Do our jobs really, really well. Like, do your job really, really well. I was on uh, the airplane flying back, and there's, there's more sermon illustrations that will come from this uh, on a future day, but I'm not going to share all the crazies that happened. But I did think about this. I was thinking, okay, how could this airline pilot that, that I am putting my hope in, how, how can he perform his, 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 his job to the best of his ability? Like, if he's a Christian, how would he do this? And my answer was pretty simple. Here's what I said. If he's performing his job to the best of ability, he will land the plane where no one will die, and he will land the plane in such a way that it can actually have a return flight. Right? Like, that's simple. It's not, it's not crazy. He does his job well enough so that we make it there safe and that he doesn't wreck the plane so that it can actually fly back somewhere else. Now, there's a lot more complicated things to, to being an airline pilot. But the bottom line is this, that whatever our job is, whether it's blue-collar or white-collar, whether we're in ministry, whether we're going overseas on mission, or working a quote-unquote secular job, all of it matters to God. 
And he wants to work through us for the good of this world. And he will use us in the things that we create and the things that we do to bring about life into this world, to display his power in this world. Now, I think all this points to the reality that God desires that people would know him. At the end of it all, when Jesus comes back and he rules this earth and he heals everything, there will be a feast, there will be no more sickness, no more decay, no more crime, no more war, no more suffering, no more death, no more tears. But all of this is leading to the fact that he desires that we proclaim him. Now, at the end of this, Peter tells us that he exalts Christ for a reason, that people would believe in the Lord. In both of these uh, miracles, the end result is that people would believe in the Lord, which means that although suffering in this life is something we want to attack because God wants to put it into it, it's not our primary problem. It's not the thing that we need the most. What we need is relationship with our God, reconciliation to our God. Said another way, the greatest thing we can do for anybody is not heal their body, but to give them a permanent and eternal relationship through Jesus Christ. That's the greatest thing we could do for anyone we love. When Peter does that as he goes to and fro, he's exalting Jesus Christ in this passage to remind us that the most important thing is not that we're just trying to make the world a better place, but that people are believing in the Lord. And so the way in which we participate in the work God has for us in this world is to proclaim Christ and to live out the ministry that God has given us, both the ministry of word and deed. Now, I think all this leads us to the, the climactic moment in this story. And I think that points us simply to this, and this is our final point that Jesus gives us resurrected life. You see, the outcome of these miracles is that many believe in the Lord, that they experience the, the greatest good possible in their life, which is salvation in Jesus Christ. But before we can see the beauty of the resurrection, we must first wrestle with the ugliness and reality of death. You see, this passage has mourning in it. This passage has a funeral in it. This passage has death in it. And we struggle sometimes talking about death, don't we? We listen to music that tries to articulate it, art that tries to articulate it, literature that tries to articulate it, but we really struggle talking and understanding death. But the Bible has an incredibly coherent explanation for death. Here's an illustration of how the Bible speaks of death. If you put someone in charge of something and they're not competent, what happens? It's going to fall apart, right? I mean, some of you know this. Like You, you probably work for someone who's incompetent, and you're like, yeah, it's falling apart right now all around me. This past week we were at the beach. I decided to take my four-year-old daughter, Ellison, outside, out, out to, the, to the water, and she was really brave. And I thought, oh, this is a great idea. Um, I'll put her on one of those body boards, those boogie boards, right, and let her you know, ride waves. She's old enough. She's brave. She can do it, right? Putting a four-year-old in control of a board in, in waves that are pretty intense was a bad idea. It was a bad parenting idea on my part, right? Like, it, things broke to pieces after that. <laughs> Poor Ellie. Um, that's not the example she wanted to set today, right? If I put my daughter behind the, the steering wheel of a car and tell her to drive, it's not going to be long before that car is in pieces, right? If you put someone in charge of a business and they are incompetent, that business is going to fall into pieces. And the reason I say this is because the Bible tells us that the human race, you and I, have decided that we want to be in charge of our own lives. We want to call our own shots. We want to be the masters in charge of our own lives. But guess what? We're incompetent for that. We're not built for that. And the result is everything is falling apart. Every bit of certainty as if you put someone incompetent of a business that it will fall apart when we are in control of our lives, it will certainly fall into pieces. It doesn't matter how much we work out. It doesn't matter how much uh, 
well we eat or how many facelifts or Botox we have, right? Eventually, we are going to be in pieces. We're going to be in bags, like piles of chemicals six feet under the ground. Every one of us. Because the Bible is clear that we're incompetent to lead our lives. And it falls apart. And death is the sentence, as Romans tells us, that because of the way which we treat others and the way which we treat God, the wages of sin is death. And here in this story, these ladies, these widows, send for the disciples to come, for Peter to come, and pray for Tabitha to be resurrected, to have an exemption to the rule, to break through in a way that breaks the pattern of death. How can God do this in our lives? Well, it's modeled for us right here in the story. As Peter kneels down to pray, and he stretches out in prayer over this woman, it's pointing to something greater. When God looks down from heaven upon us, he sees this man, Peter, praying over this woman. In a very similar way, when we look at 2 Kings, that Elisha, it says when he was praying for the boy to rise up from the grave, he stretches himself out over the boy. And when God looks down, he sees the prophet laying over this boy. He sees Peter, this man of God, praying over this woman. And what is that pointing to? That's pointing to the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for us. That in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means as our Savior Jesus Christ has stretched himself over us, that when God looks down on us, we are hidden in him. When God looks down on us, we have Jesus Christ, who God made him sin, who knew no sin. That means that when the justice of God comes down, when death that we deserve comes down, when punishment comes down, it doesn't come down on us. It comes down on Christ, who covers us. Is that another way if you're in a foxhole in a war, and a grenade is thrown into that foxhole, and you can't get to the grenade, you have two options. You can jump out, and your friend who's in the foxhole with you will certainly die. Or you can jump on top of your friend. Jesus Christ has laid down his life for his friends. He has covered us. He has taken the strap net. He's, he's taken the explosion. He's taken the death. He has done this for us. He became sin who knew no sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, to be a Christian is not to say I'm good enough or I am doing enough good things in this world or I go to church or I read my Bible or I'm turning over a new leaf. To be a Christian says, Jesus Christ, because you became my sin, I want to become your righteousness. To be a Christian says, because you took my sin on yourself, Father, accept me because of what Jesus has done for me. Don't accept me for what I can do. Don't look at my record. Don't, don't look at me. Look at Jesus' record. And in doing so, we're clothed in his righteousness. We're hidden in him. Because when God looks down on you, Christian, just like when Peter was praying over Tabitha, he sees the beauty of Christ. He sees the record of Christ. He sees the perfect life of Christ. He sees what Christ has done for you. So that when you identify with him, you identify with his righteousness. This is what it means to understand death and resurrection. That Jesus Christ gives us resurrected life. That may mean that we still have to suffer, may not mean that your prayers are always going to be answered in this side of eternity. It may mean that there will be times where we will have to endure things in this earth. But we can take heart in this, that we've experienced resurrection. Jesus Christ covers us. We have new life in him. And what this means for us is that we don't have to be afraid anymore. 
We don't have to live in fear of death, just like Dorcas here, uh, just like Peter prays for this woman. She rises from the grave. We don't have to live in fear of that moment ever again. That's when we read the early church and we read these incredible stories, as we did a few weeks ago, of Stephen the martyr. We think, how could he withstand persecution? How could he face death in the way he did? When we go to the third century Christians and we see that after plague after plague in the Roman cities, how did they not just flee for the hills? How did they keep going back into the cities, caring for the sick, caring for the needy, putting their life at risk for others? It's because they believed in the resurrection. It wasn't because they were better people. It was because they're stronger people than us. It's because they believed that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And in doing so, he has the power over death. And we too can experience that resurrection. So today as we come to the Lord's table I pray that we can trust in God's power put on display in this text. And what we're dealing with right now, we can trust in the God of all power, the one who has power of sickness, the one who has power of death, the one who we can work and live in this life to make his name known in our city. These miracles remind us that God is still on a mission to bring healing, justice, and renewal in this world. And we too can participate in that. We too can proclaim the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ has already removed our greatest obstacle between us and God. The Bible says today that if you are in Christ, if you're hidden in him, your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. He has healed your sick heart. He has removed the eternal death sentence that we deserved. And he has given us resurrected life. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.